Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Stop for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the road. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this. He's pulled ahead of his backside. Carl Williams is a one-way bottom little cherub of face, cherub of face little boy who would do it, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of, of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? I'm going to be talking about the Gun Alley murder in Melbourne in 1921. This one has fascinated me for years and is also a patron request for Joel Martin. Ah, cool. How about you, Tara? What have you got for us this week? Well, this week, I'll be talking about a murderous Florida couple whose twisted plans and schemes are almost too ridiculous to believe and would make a great Coen Brothers movie. Ooh. Yeah, twists, turns, craziness. Well, they have been in uh, need of a good script for quite some time, actually. Well, they got one if they just base it on this, I've got to tell you. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Oh, let's get murdery. Okay. 20-year-old Deirdre Michelle Hunt moved to Daytona Beach, Florida in the summer of 1989. Deirdre? Deirdre. That's that's your name. That's my middle name. Deirdre Hepburn. Deirdre. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I'm a glamorous petite lady. She'd travelled from New Hampshire to live with her boyfriend, but the relationship soon imploded and died a fiery death. Oh, I've had some relationships like that. I've Pretty <laughs> had much all several. Of them. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's generally how it goes. Apart from the one I'm in now, that's pretty much all of them. Not having a lot of skills to fall back on, she often relied on the kindness of gentlemen friends to pay her rent and expenses in exchange for services rendered. Oh, I think I know what you mean. Yeah. I don't know. I was being very subtle. So she like did house cleaning and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Something like that. Right. Cleaned something. The spunky brunette eventually landed a job as a bartender at a slimy pool hall called Top Shots. 
top shots. Top shot, make you down to top shots. Hey, sexy bar, mate. Let's crack some balls at top shots. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after starting the job, Deirdre began an affair with the owner, 30 year old Konstantinos Costa Fotopoulos. Costa had the. Uh, yeah, Irish guy, hey? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a ginger. Costa had the uh, looks of a young Pablo Escobar and rented Lisa an apartment, gave her money and bought her clothes. Mm, Handsome Irishman. (laughs) (laughs) But this isn't the kind of podcast where Cinderella stories have happy endings. Costa was married to a woman named Lisa and lived with Lisa, her mother and brother at her mother's place. Sexy. This arrangement was just while they were getting their fancy dream home renovated, though. Lisa was a hard-working woman from a successful Greek family who was enamoured by Costa. He had immigrated from Greece to make his fortune in America, just like Lisa's father had. Things went well for the pair at first, but Costa soon tired of working for the family business. He thought it was boring and beneath him. Yeah, fancied himself, eh? Yeah, a bit like Pablo Escobar. Mm. So he opened up a sleazy pool hall with scantily clad barmaids, which was popular with drug dealers, rogues and lollygaggers. Mm, lollygaggers. Oh, yeah. Constantly gagging. Here he boasted about his gigantic gun collection and reveled in telling people that he was a hitman. You don't... Look, I don't know much about hitmen, but if you are a hitman, I think the first rule of hitman is you don't tell people you're a hitman. Well, no, it's not really good for business, is it? No. 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 No, you wouldn't think so. No. Lisa had inherited a shit ton of money when her father died and was profitably building the family business, Joyland Amusement Centre in Daytona Beach. Oh, that mini golf and stuff? Uh, no, it was like um, like pinball arcades and other like, you know, fun family things on the pier. No miniature golf. I don't think there was room for miniature golf. Oh, I love miniature golf. Why have we never played it? I don't know. It's that this is a misstep. <laughs> I think this is like the Hitman thing. Like right. if you say that you love miniature golf, then you don't. Costa was about $20,000 in debt and relied on his wife's generosity to avoid bankruptcy and the loss of his business and also be able to afford a dependent piece of totty on the side. No, oh, well, yeah, toddy on the side's expensive. It is. Costa was a dodgy fucker who illegally traded in weapons and was always looking to make a quick buck. In 1987, Costa had bought $100,000 in counterfeit $100 bills and had been getting people to help him circulate them around the area. Ah, funny money, hey? Yep, Costa and the funny money at hot shots. Want to buy a gun? I'm a hitman. <laughs> See? It writes itself. Yeah, bum tongue. Oh, stop it with the bum tongue. Sorry. The authorities had identified him as a person of interest and he worried that they'd find enough evidence for an indictment. Kevin Ramsey was a 19-year-old ex-employee of Costa's who knew about the counterfeit money and was threatening to blackmail him, which didn't turn out to be a great idea. When Costa's wife, Lisa, discovered that he was having an affair with Deirdre, she told him that he had to end the affair and fire her. Being an egotistical douchebag, Costa denied that he was cheating. That denial didn't ring true to Lisa, who had followed him to Deirdre's fuck pad and knew what was going on there. They didn't particularly hide it. Yeah, right. Yeah, Deirdre was pretty hot, and so he felt like a big man that he could, like, you know, telegraph to everyone that he was banging her. 
Did she get any private investigators to kick the door in and take photos? No, she didn't. Right. I don't think she needed to. There were enough witnesses to this stuff. And yeah, right. she had followed him and discovered the fuck pads. So there was that. Yeah. Lisa told Costa that she was going to divorce him because, you know, he wasn't owning up and he didn't fire Deirdre or break up with her. Due to the circumstances, he stood to gain nothing when the marriage ended. So the lousy asswipe came up with what he considered to be a foolproof plan to make all of his problems go away, and the part Deirdre played in it would ruin her life forever. Ah, uh, so I don't think it is a foolproof plan. I think it's going to be a really shitty plan. It's a fucking stupid it's plan. A Co- it's a Coen Brothers film. All yeah. right, lay it on me. Lay it's, it on me, Tara. It's a catastrophe. <laughs> all right, I've strapped myself into this chair. I'm ready for all it. All righty. So when you rely on the kindness of gentlemen friends to support you, one can often be compromised by the arrangement. Costa's relationship with Deirdre was said to be both mentally and physically abusive. But for Deirdre, this wasn't such a new thing. Back home in New Hampshire, Deirdre's mentally ill mother had abused her and her father had walked out on them denying that she was his child in the first place. Her mum had been diagnosed with several mental illnesses, including multiple personality disorder, and apparently had 11 different personalities. Well, that's kind of rare, isn't it? It is. Yeah. The stress of dealing with her mother's condition saw Deirdre drop out of high school early on, get involved with the wrong crowd, and develop substance abuse problems. She had also been the victim of sexual abuse growing up. So Mm. she had a pretty shitty upbringing. That's tough. Yeah, she had a tough hand there. In the course of the investigation, authorities came to believe that Costa inflicted ritualistic torture on Deirdre by cutting her with razors, sucking her blood, throwing knives, burning her with cigarettes, poking her with needles and threatening her with a gun. Wow, that's romantic. Yeah, yeah. Hot. Really uh, really pays to be a bit of hot toddy, doesn't it? During a later court hearing, after Costa's genius plan inevitably failed, the prosecutor summed up how Costa treated his mistress by saying, there was a pattern of intimidation and terror inflicted upon the witness, meaning Deirdre, to terrorise her and break down her will and ultimately obtain complete control of her. So that's what uh, the prosecution is going with when they're, when they're finally trying to get him here. Okay. On October 20th, 1989, Costa and Deirdre convinced Kevin Ramsey, that's the guy who's threatening to blackmail him, yeah. to drive out to a remote shooting range with them. <laughs> Are you with me so far? Okay, yeah, I'm following. <laughs> okay. Ramsey believed he was going to be inducted into a super secret hitman club called the Hunter Killer Club. I am not joking. Okay. How would one join such a club? The Hunter Killer Club? Yes. Well, please allow me to explain. Costa had managed to convince Ramsey that he was a contract assassin who had killed eight people. He said he worked for the mob and the CIA and that by joining the Hunter Killer Club, Ramsey could also become a hitman. Yeah, sweet. Deirdre later told police that she'd gone with Costa that night thinking she was going to be initiated into the club too. Um, But it's all just a little hard to believe, isn't it? It really is. Maybe they're all high as fuck and that detail just (laughs) didn't make it into all of the research I did. I don't know. Kind of sounds a bit coked up, doesn't it? Costa and Deirdre unpacked a 22 rifle and an AK-47 from the boot of Costa's car as Ramsey scouted ahead to make sure there was no one around. Deirdre said that Costa then told her that at most two people would be making the return trip back from the shooting range that night. 
He apparently said that if she wanted to make it out alive, she would have to kill Ramsay. The two future killers caught up with Ramsay and Costa explained how the ritual would proceed. He also carried a camcorder that he was going to tape the initiation on. He said each of the members of the club were to commit a murder that would be taped. Then the tapes would be swapped among the members as insurance to prevent anyone from going to the police in the future. As far as shitty plans go, this elephant-sized turd scheme is by far the stinkiest I've ever sniffed. (laughs) You're not wrong. Uh, This is a pretty bad plan. What about this plan ever sounded like a good idea to anybody? Let's commit some murders and film them. The hell? Also, let's commit some murders. Also not a good plan. When they got to a remote clearing, Costa told Deirdre to tie Kevin to a nearby tree. Believing that this part of the ritual was to prove his trust, Kevin allowed it to happen. Now, what occurred next was recorded on video. The 57-second tape opens with a flashlight shining on Deirdre's face. She stands a few feet away from the tree where Kevin Ramsey is, his arms tied behind him. The shot widens so that Deirdre and Kevin can both be seen. Deirdre points a 22 caliber handgun at Kevin Ramsey and pulls the trigger three times, all hitting him in the chest. He lets out a dying groan, then slumps forward, the ropes holding him. Deirdre then walks up to the seemingly lifeless teen, grabs him by the hair and fires a fourth shot into his temple. Then the recording stops. So he's in the club now? Yeah, he's in the club now. He's probably going to be really happy about that. No. 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 After turning off the video recorder, Costa picked up the AK-47 and fired a full metal jacket slug into Kevin's head to ensure that he was dead. Seems like he was pretty dead already, right? Definitely dead. Costa and Deirdre left Ramsey's body tied to the tree and drove home. Now, I've seen the tape up to the first shot being fired, and Deirdre doesn't hesitate at all. It makes you wonder if she wasn't just doing it due to Costa's coercion. She sounds quite complicit in this whole thing, doesn't she? Yeah. Look, you know, it's all hard to unpack, really. So now not only had Costa rid himself of Kevin and the threat of blackmail, but he had extortion material to hold over Deirdre's head. It was the best day ever for Costa. Good day for Costa. Not such a good day for Kevin. No, shitty day for Kevin. So Costa the smug prick used the tape as leverage to get Deirdre to hire someone to kill his wife, Lisa. He devised this plan so he could get his grubby paws on the $700,000 life insurance policy and then he and Deirdre could live happily or abusively ever after. Now, this is when the story goes full Coen Brothers. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) After offering several guys money to kill Lisa, criminal mastermind Deirdre wound up hiring a guy named Tezza James to kill her for $5,000. After James botched two attempts to murder Lisa, 18-year-old Brian Chase was hired to kill her instead. Brian was a troubled teen who whiled away his days loitering at the Daytona Beach Arcade. Armed with a 22 caliber automatic, Brian entered the house by cutting through the screen of a first floor window. Brian was making his third attempt in as many days to kill Lisa. The previous attempts had failed when he was scared off by neighbours and also when he showed up at the house without a knife to cut the window screen. Ah, damn, forgot me knife. (sighs) Should have put it on my to-do list. Entering the Photopolis's bedroom, Brian edged close to Lisa's side of the bed and pointed the gun at her head and fired. 
Miraculously, the shot not only failed to kill Lisa, but it did only minor damage to her brain. Brian squeezed the trigger a second time, but the weapon had jammed and it didn't go off. Costa, lying beside Lisa, then reached under the bed, pulled out a 9mm weapon and shot Brian Chase. The teenage, try-hard hitman died on the bedroom floor. Well, maybe now he's a member of the, the Hunter Killer Club. Oh, you, you need to be tied to a tree for that, don't no, you? Actually, yeah, I think you do. Yeah. Uh, it's a complicated process, but I know it ends in death. The preliminary findings by the police were exactly what Costa had hoped for. They thought that Lisa was shot by a burglar who was then killed by Costa, which also made him a hero in her family's eyes. Wow, Costa the hero. Yeah, big time hero to Lisa's mm. family for shooting her mm. attacker. The plan obviously hadn't worked perfectly, though, because Lisa was still alive. Doctors would be unable to remove the bullet from her head for fear of causing further damage. Lisa told police what she remembered about the attack. She said the evening had started normally, with Costa going out into the backyard to bury a large bag just before they went to bed for the night. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> Could you say that again? Is that the normal a normal evening for Costa? Well, yeah, Lisa said that wasn't unusual because Costa was constantly burying bags in the yard like yeah. a normal person. <laughs> The next thing she knew, she was woken up by a fierce pain in her head and heard Costa talking on the phone to 911, telling them that he'd killed an intruder. Meanwhile, Costa and Deirdre were brainstorming the idea of delivering a bomb hidden in a bouquet of flowers to the hospital. Lisa had to die, Deirdre later told prosecutors. She just had to die. Back at the crime scene, investigators were starting to question whether Brian's death was part of a larger plan. Lisa had told them about an incident that occurred a week before when Tezza James attacked her at the amusement centre. Threatening her at gunpoint, Tezza tried to force Lisa into a small room at the arcade, but she escaped. The apparent would-be robber then ran off without stealing anything. So this is the same guy who came through the window and shot No, her. no, that's a different oh, guy a different who guy. tried twice and failed and oh. then he got replaced by the, by the other guy. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's a really good secret operation they have going here. Analyzing the evidence, police noticed that Brian had cut through the screen of the one window on the ground level that was not connected to an alarm system. Yeah, what a coincidence. Yeah. They also questioned why a burglar would shoot a sleeping woman and not fire at the man next to her. Police also noted that he had to walk past an expensive stereo system and the bedrooms of both her mother and brother before reaching her room. The whole thing just did not add up. It does not. When the newspapers broke the story of how Costa had killed the intruder, um, baking him into a big, big hero, 20-year-old Mike Cox, a friend of Deirdre's, called the cops. He told investigators how Deirdre had introduced him to Costa, who offered him $10,000 to kill his wife. Cox was convinced that he would have ended up like Brian if he'd agreed. And I don't doubt it. Yeah. That was always the plan. Armed with this information, the Daytona Beach police brought Deirdre in for an interview. Over the course of two hours, Deirdre sung like a turd, bird, I mean bird, and <laughs> told them everything she knew, including how Kevin Ramsey was killed and the location of his body. See, no one had actually reported Kevin Ramsey missing. And he was still tied to the tree? He was, and quite decomposed by this point. Yeah. Deirdre also revealed that Lisa had been targeted by hitmen five times over the past several weeks, but that every attempt had failed. 
Lisa should buy a lottery ticket because this is one lucky woman. Yeah, I'll say. Although they are quite inept, the people trying to kill her. Bumbling, I believe. They yeah, would be described knuckleheads. as knuckleheads. Costa had wanted her murdered at a Halloween party, but the crowd scared off that would-be killer. And another time... The Scary hitmen's... costumes. Yeah, yeah. They were like, oh, God, someone's dressed up as a clown. Um, and another time, the hitman's car wouldn't start, which thwarted a plan to stage a car accident and kill Lisa then. Yeah. They're just thinking about killing Lisa all the damn time. Also, Lisa didn't do anything. It's terrible. The police dug up the bag Costa buried the night of Lisa's attack. In it was the AK-47 and 22 used to kill Kevin Ramsey. They also later found the videotape of Kevin Ramsey's murder. Thoroughly damning evidence, the lot of it. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Police arrested Costa and he and Deirdre were charged with two counts of first-degree murder and several conspiracy charges. Costa denied everything, but of course. Of course he did. Yes. I didn't do it, by the way. Did you know that I'm a hitman? Yeah, I'm a hitman. I'm in a secret club. I didn't do it. I don't know where those guns came from that I buried in the yard. And no, I didn't get my girlfriend to ask fucking 16 people to kill my wife. Faced with a damning videotape, Deirdre decided to throw herself on the mercy of the court. And in May 1990, she pleaded guilty to two capital murder charges. The judge agreed to hold off on the penalty phase until after she testified against Costa. By cooperating, Deirdre hoped to avoid having a sit-down date with old Sparky. Oh, the lecky chair. Yeah, nobody mm. wants that. No. Unless you want to join the, the killer the, clown yeah, club or whatever. killer club. Hunter the killer secret club. hitman society. But as Costa's trial grew closer, Deirdre got cold feet about testifying and the state moved ahead with its sentencing hearing. Over the course of a week, the judge listened to testimony about whether Deirdre was a bloodthirsty killer or an abused and emotionally traumatised young woman. Mm, Why not both? Why not both, I was going (laughs) to say. Could be a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. The highlight, though, of the sentencing hearing was when Deirdre's mother, Carol, that makes her C, Hunt, (laughs) took the stand and said that she did not want her daughter to get the death penalty, but then she shrugged her shoulders and added, eh, if it happens, it happens. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Good one. Wonder which personality that was. The apathetic one, I guess. Yeah. When her time came, Deirdre took responsibility and expressed remorse, saying tearfully, I take responsibility for my actions, but I was a non-willing participant in these crimes. If I had not done it, I would have died at the hands of Costa Fotopoulos. She also apologised to the families of Ramsey and Brian. But the judge didn't buy it and he sentenced her to death twice. Mm. Two dates with old Sparky. Two dates. Do they have two chairs? Uh, was she uh, going to sit in both of them? No, you, you move her out of the first chair into the second chair. Oh, it just seems superfluous at this point, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. Twice the voltage, maybe? Ah, yeah, that's a thought. Mm. Deirdre ended up testifying against Costa, who was also convicted and sentenced to death. In 1990, Deirdre's death sentences were automatically appealed because things were a bit off. Peter Niles, the court-appointed attorney who had represented Deirdre, was handling her appeal and contacted the warden at the correctional institution she was in to arrange an attorney-client meeting. Sounds fair. He told the warden that he'd made plans with the prosecutor and the judge to videotape Deirdre regarding testimony about Costa. She's willing to do all kinds of things on tape. 
She really is. Mm. However, when Niles and his crew sat down with Deirdre, he told her that they were not working on her case, but the people he'd brought with him were from the tabloid TV show A Current Affair. Ooh. Niles told Deirdre that he was not being paid for bringing the crew into the prison and that she would not be paid for the interview. Unusual as it is for a lawyer, Niles was a liar and was actually being paid $5,000. Surely he got disbarred for this. Uh, no, he got a little slap on the wrist and then he wasn't allowed to practice for a year and then they, they gave him a cake and a puppy and a strawberry milkshake and went, good on you for being a white man. Racist. <laughs> I know, I'm the worst. I'm the problem with society. How dare yeah. I? I thought we killed that racism thing. Yeah, I thought it was fixed too, but apparently not. The deal had been in the works for six months, which meant that Niles was negotiating with a current affair at the same time he was representing Deirdre before the state. So this information surfaced in 1993, and the judge who heard Deirdre's guilty pleas had no choice but to grant her motion to rescind them. Everyone except Deirdre was super pissed off about this. Well, it's definitely a conflict of interest, isn't it? Yeah, a really glaring one. Mm. Deirdre Hunt was retried in 1996. She was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. No dates with old Sparky for Deirdre. Wow. Deirdre Hunt, eh? Yep. Dunt. And Costa, he got the death sentence, right? Yeah, yeah, he got the death sentence. So he'd be on death row for the next 30 years or the so. The next 55 years, just yeah, getting right. fat. Yeah. You know, thinking mm. about how great he is. Mm. Missing his sweet, sweet gun collection. Trying to get people to join his club. <laughs> yeah, telling everyone he's a hitman. I'm just going to tie you here to this tree. <laughs> we don't have any trees in the prison. Okay, let's pretend this chair is a tree and I'm going to tie you to it. Right. Um, yeah, so what a bizarre plot, huh? Yeah, it just kept getting weirder and weirder. Weirder too. and weirder. I mm. know. Like, I, it's kind of unbelievable, all of it. But, well, it's true. Mm. Yes, this is not a fictional podcast. No. <laughs> uh, this is all true. Speaking of true, mm-hmm. you know what time it is? I do. It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Like a song about the nipple belt made by Ed Gein. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. That's true. We've got one here from Skylar Abdel-Jalil. Yes, she's in our Facebook group. She is, and she writes, Hi, Barney and Tara, I'm addicted to the podcast. Sweet. A podcast. I've been listening for a year or so, and now I stay up late when a new episode drops. Work be damned. That's a spirit. You too rock. Well, she's not wrong. Anyway, <laughs> I've been meaning to email for a while now, but you'll never find a bigger procrastinator. I don't know about that. No. <laughs> I've got a true crime nerd time for you. The Serial Killer Whisperer by Pete Early. My parents bought this book as a Christmas gift for me in 2016, and the second I got around to reading it, I couldn't put it down. It's not exactly a traditional true crime book, but it scratches all my itches. Ah, she was itchy, but not anymore. It chronicles the story of Tony Cagalla, who suffered a traumatic brain injury at a young age that drastically changed his personality. 
In order to cope with the depression and dark thoughts that followed, he began corresponding with serial killers that are imprisoned in the United States. His unique outlook allowed him to develop relationships with these men, and some even revealed crimes to him that they hadn't previously been attributed to. Ooh. In the book, author Pete Early focuses on Tony's correspondences with Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River Killer, and Joe Metheny, but it does appear that Tony has corresponded with quite a few murderers. It does feature direct excerpts from the killer's letters, and they can get quite graphic, so be warned. Overall, this unique true crime book belongs in any true crime nerd's collection. I've also contacted Tony, the author, on Facebook to ask a question for a book I was working on, and he is literally the nicest person I've ever talked to. Wow, that's quite the recommendation. Well, she hasn't talked to me yet. Yeah, no, but even if she did, you're kind of a dick. Barney's nice. His story is incredible, and he's helping families get closure for murders that may never have been solved. So go and check out The Serial Killer Whisperer by Pete Early. That is a ringing recommendation. Mm, Thank you, Skylar. Yeah, thank you. I certainly want to check it out. Now, if you'd like to send in a true crime nerd time, send it in to bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. Make it about 200 words or so. And as I said earlier, you can record it if you want to, too. Yeah, we'd love to do it that way. Yeah, and, you know, we'll put it on our website as well as putting it in our episode. And we'll send you some stickers if you want to send us your postal address, too. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yep. All right, Barney. I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Okay, then. On December 30th, 1921, on the streets of Melbourne, Australia, a 12-year-old girl named Elma Tersk was sent by her grandmother to gather some shopping. However, instead of returning home, she was brutally raped and murdered. Elma's task that day had been to go from her grandmother's house in Jollymont to the butchers Bennett and Woolcock on Swanson Street, collect a parcel of meat, drop it at her aunt's Collins Street home and return to Jollymont. But she never made it. Elma's naked body was found by a bottle collector early the next day, New Year's Eve 1921. The crime shocked the city and Melbournians were whipped into a frenzy, demanding the culprit be apprehended post-haste. Absolutely. It was uncharacteristic for Elma to take so long on her errands. A witness said he saw a man following Elma. Reliable witnesses who had nothing to lose or gain by telling police what they knew said Elma was dawdling, apprehensive and obviously afraid. This was just a few metres away from the Australian Wine Saloon in the Eastern Arcade between Burke and Little Collins Street in inner city Melbourne. It's all gone now, by the way. It's um, oh, yeah, a high-rise there now. Other, but, other crap. Probably gigantic blocks of flats like there is everywhere else. Yeah. A local innkeeper, Colin Ross, was questioned and quickly arrested by police. The cops were desperate to find the killer behind one of the city's most sensational crimes, amid a storm of outrage from the public and the press. Ross was known to the police. His inn was known for drunken lowlifes and he had form. Ross had several petty offences for violence on record. 
He first came to the police attention in 1920 after his girlfriend refused to marry him. Ross threatened her and at one point produced a revolver. Okay, that's, that's not how you handle that. Well, yeah, the cops agreed and he was sentenced to 14 days jail, but the sentence was suspended under a good behaviour bond. He was fined five pounds on the firearms charge. Yeah, five pounds was a lot of money in those days, I guess. Yeah, but it wasn't because he threatened his girlfriend. It was because he had a gun. Hmm. Ross protested his innocence and six independent witnesses verified that he was nowhere near the alley in which Elmer was killed. A cabbie, Joseph Graham, reported hearing a scream coming from a nearby alley at the time where Ross was busy working. However, all of this evidence was ignored and not taken to trial. So instead of those six independent witnesses saying that he wasn't anywhere near it, by the time it came to court, five witnesses came forward to testify against Ross. Right. So let's talk about those witnesses. Number one, John Harding, a criminal and known perjurer who was promised time off his sentence. He claimed Ross confessed to him in jail. Okay, well, that sounds a little fishy. He also got some of the reward. Oh, really? Yeah. Number two, Olive Maddox, a sex worker that Ross and his brother had previously fired from their saloon. In a newspaper article after the trial, she was described as simple of mind. The article also stated, Olive Maddox has been in jail several times since the trial, the last conviction being a few months ago. Then in the dock of the city court, she wept frantically and begged that she should not be sent back to Pentridge. That's a prison in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. They can't cure me. They have to put two or three hundred injections into me. She cried passionately. But they cannot cure me. Let me free so that I can get proper treatment. Okay, so it sounds like she might have some mental health issues. I would say so. At the trial of Ross, Maddox declared that she went into his wine bar at five minutes past five on December 30. In a small compartment, she saw Elmer with two strange men. The girl had an empty glass in front of her and Maddox swore that, in answer to a protest from her, Ross replied that if the girl wanted a drink, she could have one. Okay, so another witness where we're like, Nee. Not very credible. Witness number three. Oh, you like this one, Tara. Mm. A fortune teller named Madame Gurkha. Oh, well, I trust her already. She was seeking a share of the uh, £1,250 oh, reward offered. Bet she was. So let's hear about Madame Gurkha. Please. Madame Gurkha testified that on the morning following the murder, she informed senior detective Piggott that she saw the child enter Ross's wine saloon, that she watched and watched and watched, and that little Elmer never reappeared. Okay, so she just stood out the front of the bar for several hours watching. Couldn't she just have predicted that she wasn't going to come I out? I think that that probably would have saved a lot of time. Or <laughs> gone in to see what was going on, maybe. I don't know. Madame Gurkha was described as plainly dressed, plump, rosy-cheeked looking woman of about 50 summers and as many winters. Oh, how many springs, you think? Twelve. Wow, who's not even. Whose distinguishing feature is a foreign accent of Russian flavour. Mmm, duh. She also answers to the plebeian name of Julia Gibson and declares that she is a phrenologist and character reader and a criminologist. I am phrenologist, character reader and criminologist. <laughs> the law to her is something holy, something to be observed, and insofar as it lies in her power as a criminologist, she will see that it is obeyed. She is the avowed enemy of all wrongdoers. This is truth. That's Madame Gurkha. I love her. <laughs> I love her, but I don't trust her. I don't believe her. No. I love her, but I don't believe her. <laughs> yeah. Witness number four, 
David Alberts, who described himself as a vaudeville artist. Oh, really? He had form. Mm. Yes. His story was he was travelling through the Eastern Arcade on the night of December 30 between 7.30 and 8 when a man whom he recognised as Ross came out and asked him for a pencil. He did not have one and walked on. At this time, Elmer was supposed to be dead and Ross faced with the horrible task of cleaning up the evidence of his terrible crime. If that was so, then all the consummate coolness with which Ross was credited must have reached its freezing point that he should walk out into the light and show himself for the sake of a pencil, which would have been of no use to him in his grim burial preparations. No. So, no. It's not common for someone trying to hide a body to ask for a pencil. Yeah, but also this is vaudeville guy. Like, do we trust him too? Could he just make shit up as well, like everyone else? It gets worse. Oh, no. When Alberts described himself as an actor, he was telling no lie. Asked at the trial to say if he saw the man who asked for the pencil in court, he gazed around the bench press and spectators first, then at the dock and remarked casually, Yes, there he is. Russ's counsel wanted to know why Alberts had searched around the court when he knew that Russ was on trial. He replied, I have never been in a court of law before and did not know where the dock was, replied Alberts. If I'd known whereabouts to find him, I would have looked straight at him. Hmm. This guy's got form, right? Right. So he, he has been to court before? Yes, he has. He's, he doth protest to actorly? Yeah. <laughs> Witness number five. Oh, Jesus. When does this stop? <laughs> There's a billion of these frickazoids. There's six of them, actually. I, yeah. Mm. Ivy Matthews, the woman of many aliases who has sworn to a confession made to her by Ross. But at the time of the murder, she was unfriendly with Ross. They hated each other. It seems rather strange that he would confide his darkest secrets to her. Yeah, you don't normally go up to someone that you really don't get along with and then go like, here's something that could get me killed because, you know, it's that bad. Now, an expert witness that they had... Well, as opposed to the shit ones that you've mentioned. I don't know if this guy is an expert witness, but this is the way they sold him. His name was Charles Price, a chemist who was tasked with carrying out an early form of forensic science. He admitted he was no expert in the area. (laughs) But they gave him the job anyway. Yeah. Price was asked to examine a series of hair fibres found on a blanket in Ross's home. After a long and contradictory spiel in which he said that the fibres were a different colour than those of Elmer's, didn't appear to be ripped from the scalp and a different diameter, he then concluded that the hairs did come from Elmer. What? How does that... That doesn't (laughs) seem to... What kind of maths is he using? So it was two weeks after Elmer's funeral, Ross was arrested, Mm -hmm. and that was when they, um, they took the blankets and found some hairs. And after comparing them to Elmer's, Price said they come from the scalp of one and the same person. Okay, well, um, the chain of evidence here... It is. It has not been upheld particularly well, has it? Sounds like they could be anybody's. Well, that's right. Apparently, those blankets were sitting on a policeman's desk for a week too. Oh no! Yeah. Based on the evidence of these uh, witnesses, Russ was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. No way! Do you think that they were just like in such a state because there was all this community pressure to find out who did it, and so like law enforcement were like, let's just give him, just give him some blood and then maybe they'll stop bothering us. Let me answer it in this way, Tara. Is it a riddle? In a rhetorical question. Excellent, thank you. But was Colin Ross an innocent man? (laughs) (laughs) 
His barrister, Thomas Brennan, was so convinced of Ross's innocence that he wrote a book and campaigned to have the case reviewed, but public interest waned. Yeah. He argued that Ross was convicted on the basis of a dubious jailhouse confession and several random strings of hair found on a blanket. He's not wrong. Innocent, I swear. It was a stance Colin Ross maintained all through his time in jail and right until he stood before the hangman stating, I am now face to face with my maker and I swear by almighty God that I am an innocent man. I never saw the child. I never committed the crime and I don't know who did. I never confessed to anyone. I ask God to forgive those who have sworn my life away and pray God to have mercy on my poor darling mother and my family. Damn. At 10am on April 24, 1922, the old Melbourne jail hangman pulled the gallows lever and Colin Campbell Ross fell to his fate. Arrested in January and executed in April, it only took a few months for Ross to be resigned to meeting his doom. He must only have hoped for an instant death. Instead, the knot of the noose did not run freely. Authorities had decided to experiment with a four-stranded rope rather than the usual three-stranded European hemp. Ross did not die immediately because his spinal cord was fractured, not severed. Although his windpipe was torn and obstructed by his destroyed larynx, the condemned man continued with rasping breaths and convulsed on the rope. Ugh. Mm, that's, that's a horrible way to go. Three times Ross bent his knees and flexed his arms as he battled his killer bonds before dying. It is thought his death by asphyxiation took eight to 20 minutes. Oh, that would seem like a lot longer if it was you, I'm sure. Look, a lot of people were baying for blood at that time, yeah. as, as I've, I've spoken about, yeah. but a lot of people thought he was innocent too. So this is taken straight from uh, page 11 from the Truth newspaper, Yeah. Sunday, June 14, 1925. And I want you to read this for me, Tara. Oh, I'm going to okay? read it. Yeah. Okay. Colin Ross lies in a murderer's grave in the grounds of the old Melbourne jail, and soon Kitty's feet will scamper over him when the jail becomes a school. Had she lived, little Alma might have been one of the happy throng of youngsters who will chase each other at playtime. Twelve of his fellow citizens found Ross guilty of murdering the girl, and he was hanged. Was there a miscarriage of justice? Those who believed Ross to be innocent are still of that opinion. Discrepancies in the evidence and the class of witnesses relied on by the Crown have never been forgiven by them. There is now a ripple of restless questions and whispers of sensational revelations that have reached the ear of the truth. Was Colin Ross innocent? Every breeze that blew throughout Australia during his trial bore this question on its breast, and for many months after his execution it recurred. Whispers which have been breathed in Melbourne of late have resuscitated the question. How was that? That was fantastic. Thank you. Whispers. Felt a bit fancy. Good job. Thank you. Is that to make sure I'm still awake during your story? <laughs> That's right. Colin was certainly innocent, in my opinion. Researcher and author Kevin Morgan thought so too. In his book, Gun Alley, Murder, Lies and Failure of Justice, he explains how public hysteria, 
media criticism of police and politicians and the testimony of unreliable witnesses conspired to assure Ross's hanging. It was a repeated haunting image of a schoolgirl in a series of Charles Blackman paintings that in 1993 piqued the interest of Kevin Morgan. Oh. So fast forward 60 years or so. Yeah, okay. Morgan, then a librarian at the National Gallery of Victoria, was fascinated by the appearance of a little girl in the pleated tunic and hat in Blackman's works. He learned of the Gun Alley murder for the first time in notes about the girl in the exhibition catalogue and began to investigate. Two years later, he quit his job and began work on his book, which was published in 2005. His painstaking research raised serious doubts about the Ross conviction, and he even located the strands of hair tested in the original case. Wow, I'm surprised they kept them, considering sort of, you know, how thorough that was at the time. Morgan even found Elmer's younger sister, Viola, who was living in Melbourne. He spoke to her in 1996, and in these conversations, he may have revealed Elmer's likely killer. And it wasn't Colin Ross. Who was it? The book names a man known to Elmer and Viola recounting his pedophilic tendencies and the girl's mistrust of him. Elmer's niece, Viola's daughter, Betty, Betty Arthur, lives in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. For many years, Betty believed that Elmer, the aunt she never knew, was a victim of a traffic accident. Okay, I guess that's one way to explain it on to, you know, kids and stuff. Yeah, these are the deep, dark family secrets that just don't get out, you know? Skeletons in the closet kind of thing. Eventually, her mother told her the truth but swore her to secrecy, and she honoured that for decades. I was about to say, my family doesn't have any of those. How the fuck would I know? Well, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Kevin Morgan also spoke to Betty Everett. Her father, Stan Ross, was the youngest brother of Colin Ross. Now 75, Betty Everett recalls that the Uncle Colin she never knew was a family secret. When she was about 15, Betty saw in a Bible the dates of birth of her father and his siblings, Lexi, Ron and Thomas. But there was another name, Tara. Colin Campbell Ross. She and her sister did not know about Uncle Colin and felt unable to approach their parents about the mystery. Betty Everett said, The next occasion I became aware of some secret was upon a visit of Aunt Lexi. She was talking to my mother and I heard the words, Do the girls know? This concerned me, but I still did not feel I could ask my parents. Stan Ross never mentioned his executed brother to his daughters, even as adults. Betty Everett discovered the truth in the early 1950s in a magazine article about the murder. She nearly fell over when she saw the photo of Colin Campbell Ross. He looked so much like my father, I couldn't mistake him, she said. Wow, that would have to be really surreal for her. I know. Apart from the shock of reading about a relative being linked to such a crime, Betty Everett was intrigued by the article's conclusion. The reporter had been at Colin's hanging and in his article expressed his belief that the hanging was that of an innocent man, she said. Betty Everett had further cause to believe in her uncle's innocence when her husband Keith came across a book by trial banister Thomas Brennan. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, the one who wrote a book about it. (laughs) Yeah, that guy? Is it the book that he wrote? Colin's defence attorney. Yeah. (laughs) By trial banister Thomas Brennan, who wrote it not long after Ross was hanged, Brennan's review of the trial, although observing the conventions of legal dignity, could be read as a condemnation of Ross's conviction. 
Well, I mean, wasn't that the point of him writing it? I think it's, yeah, it would be read as that. <laughs> it can be read that way. Well, I think that's probably how most people well, read it. Well, if you read it backwards, it really doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. <laughs> no, it wouldn't, would it? Forty years later, when Kevin Morgan tracked down Betty Everett and said his research all but proved Ross's innocence, she felt as though the family's soul had been freed from a murderous taint. Colin Campbell Ross was a bit of a scoundrel, but essentially harmless. He lived with his mother and brother in Maidstone. He loved and was respectful to his mother, and she loved him. Ross was not uneducated, just a bit rough around the edges. Yeah, I wasn't super happy about the thing with the gun and his, like, girlfriend. That was a bit shit. Yeah, there's no real serious crimes, though, in his record. There's some slight dishonesty charges, pinching shit, I don't know. The bar he ran was not a salubrious establishment, but neither was it the den of all evil. Many at the time believe Elma was afraid she was being stalked by a man she knew and of whom she was wary. Why didn't she go to her aunt's Collins Street home and drop the parcel as instructed? Who did she fear might be there? Why didn't she return to Jollymont? Was there something she couldn't tell her grandmother? Please tell me that you have the answers to all of these questions. I wish I did, Tara. Ah! Ross could account for his movements at the time Elma disappeared, and with nothing to hide, Ross later told detectives who interviewed him that a girl matching Elma's description had passed his saloon. It has now been proved that Elma was never at the wine bar, that Ross was there when Elma was murdered, and that a man known to Elma and her sister, and who made them uncomfortable, was likely the killer. There was even a suggestion made during the trial that Elma was responsible for her own murder. Uh, so, hang on, what, a 12-year-old girl raped and murdered herself? Yeah, I don't know. She went into the bar. She's wearing clothes oh, that was... Oh, uh, Look, you know. Sake. Come look, on. Victim blaming is pretty bad these days. Imagine mm-hmm. how it was in 1920. Oh, it was probably a national sport. It probably was. Morgan believed the characters of Ross and Elmer, described by loved ones as bright, quietly spoken and reserved, had both been besmirched by the botched investigation and the trial. The prosecution's case against Ross succeeded only by asking the jury and by extension the public to believe a 12-year-old had contributed to her own rape and murder, he wrote. (sighs) Yeah. It's that kind of stuff. Just makes me so mad. Okay, let me just change the headline a bit, okay? Please. Relatives of Ross and Elmer then united to sign a petition of mercy to have Ross's conviction overturned. Oh, wow. So so Elmer's family were quite convinced that Ross didn't do it either. Yeah, that's right. So this is in the early 2000s. It took until 2006 when an inquiry by three Supreme Court judges found that there had been a miscarriage of justice in the case. This included a modern DNA examination of the hair samples compared in the original case, which found those discovered in Ross's house did not match Elmer's. Yeah, well, the expert at the time even said that before he said they did. In 2008, Governor David de Cresta signed Victoria's first posthumous pardon for Colin Ross 86 years after he was hanged. But the question remains, who did rape and kill Elma? The man who committed the act certainly felt the weight of his actions, for he sent a letter to Ross's attorney's office on the eve of the execution in April 1922. Hey, so was this verified? Like, they know it was the guy who did it? Well, he it? didn't mention parts of the crime that only the police could know. So it could just be any wingnut? It could be, but... 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Look, I'd love to hear it, but like you know, grain of salt, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll read the letter in full. Okay. <laughs> Please. You have been condemned for a crime which you never committed, and are to suffer for another's fault. Since your conviction, you have no doubt wondered what manner of man the real murderer is, who could not only encompass the girl's death but allow you to suffer in his stead. Yeah, that's a double murder, isn't it? If it is any satisfaction for you to know it, believe me that you will die but once, but he will continue to die for the rest of his life. Oh, wank into a sock. He seems to go into this third person thing, though he might be talking about somebody else. I don't know. Honoured and fawned upon by those who know him, the smile upon his lips but hides the canker eating into his soul. Day and night his life is hell without hope of reprieve. Gladly would he take your place on Monday next if he had himself alone to consider. His reason then briefly stated is this. A devoted and loving mother is ill. A shock will be fatal. Three loving married sisters whose whole life will be wrecked. To say nothing of brothers who have been accustomed to take him as a pattern. He cannot sacrifice these. Well, I'm sure that Ross couldn't sacrifice those either. Yeah. It's a pretty narcissistic logic going on By the way, all of those families involved in Elmer's murder changed their surnames. Oh, wow, because of all the press and, like, buzzing and stuff. Okay. Himself, he will sacrifice when his mother passes away. He will do it by his own hand. It is too painful for him to go into the details of the crime. It is simply a Jekyll and Hyde existence. Oh, I feel so bad for him having to think about raping and murdering a 12-year-old girl. I mean, what about her? By a freak of nature, he was not made as other men. This girl was not his first. With the procureness of all things are possible, in this case there was no intention of murder. The victim unexpectedly collapsed. May it be some satisfaction to yourself, your devoted mother, and the members of your family to know that at least one of the legions of the damned, who is the cause of your death, is suffering the pangs of hell. He may not ask for your forgiveness or sympathy, but he asks for your understanding. And it's unsigned. (laughs) That's a shame, isn't it? (laughs) Did I tell you that I'm a hitman? Yeah, it's a secret club. You should join it. So hang on. So maybe um, he's saying that he he was a serial rapist who didn't mean to kill her? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe he has killed before. Yeah. Um, And and also, grain of salt. I mean, who Mm. knows how real this is? Yeah. So who was this man? He certainly was educated, as this letter can attest. He claims to be honoured and fawned upon, so he may have come from a position of power or privilege. Oh, he was probably a DJ. (laughs) (laughs) He also... Tara... (laughs) He also claims to have raped and maybe murdered before. Maybe he was an early 20th century Melbourne serial killer. I'd like to know if he did, as he claimed he would, end his life by his own hand. They don't usually unless they're about to get caught. So if you'd like to know more about that case, um, I recommend Kevin Morgan's book, Gun Alley, Murder, Lies and the Failure of Justice. He goes into it in a lot more detail. Fascinating case. I believe Sexy Barney almost took over for you just then. Hey, baby, read this book. So, yeah, wow, that's... So I'd like to thank Joel Martin for suggesting that too. Thanks, Joel. That was fascinating. I just want answers, though. I want the answers. Uh, Sometimes there aren't any answers. (sighs) Yeah, that's true. Hmm. I've got a question for you that doesn't have an answer. 
Bum tongue? No. What is Ozzy as? Ozzy <laughs> as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian thing. <laughs> Flavour. Really? Are we boring you, Tara? Fla- I'm boring myself at this point. Two cousins have been jailed after trying to smuggle drugs into the Northern Territory by covering them in dog feces. Cousins Daniel Vella and Joseph Galea, probably nicknamed Dano and Josie, were driving towards Darwin from Melbourne, feeling all gangster, probably quoting lines from Scarface to each other, when they were pulled over by the cops just south of Alice Springs. The police found five grams of methamphetamine in the car and 77 LSD tablets yeah. on the dashboard. They said, turn that Kelly Clarkson down <laughs> and let us search the vehicle. <laughs> so, yeah, 77 acid tabs on the dash. You know, you've got to keep them handy. You never know when you might need to take a trip while you're driving, right? Well, yeah, trips go with trips. Yeah, well, it's a road trip. Get yeah, it? Yeah, Get you, it? Hey, you want to take some shit? What, dog shit? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I love a good road trip. So the court heard that police then found another 500 grams of methamphetamine and 220 grams of weed inside a steel roll bar on the back of the vehicle. That's a lot of drugs. It really is a lot of drugs. Big party. Yeah, that was going to be one sweet music festival. So Dano and Josie were in deep shit despite their cunning plan to avoid detection by utilising the stinky powers of dog shit. How could it possibly go wrong? Yeah, dog shit can be stinky. Oh, so stinky. Judge Trevor Riley said that a bag of dog poo was stuffed in front of the drugs, apparently with the purpose of avoiding detection by drug-detected dogs. Like that's going to work. Dogs know exactly what dog shit smells like and hey. drug dogs know exactly what drugs smell like. If that would work, everyone would be doing it. Didn't Divine eat some dog shit on stage once? Uh, no, it was in Pink Flamingos, which is a John Waters movie. Oh, right. Maybe there was drugs in it. There might have been. Well, that would explain it. Finally, there you go. it makes sense. Mystery solved. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Barney. <laughs> thank you, Divine. Oh, yeah. Mostly Divine did the hard work on that one. <laughs> I believe so. So, <laughs> just <heavy> <laughs> Oh, the gross eating. Justice Riley went on to say, This was an exercise that was planned in quite some detail, including by secreting the drugs in a location which was difficult to discover and where the presence of the drugs was disguised in a way to avoid detection from drug-detected dogs. A good deal of thought on the part of the two of you is apparent. So the drugs would have been worth like 300 grand. Ooh. Ah. Yeah. Dano and JC were sentenced to four years and two months in jail with a non-parole period of two years and six months. Now, the moral of this story is dog poo can't solve everything, just most things. Yeah. What can it solve again? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I have to tell you, then you don't deserve to know. Mm, Divine's asking for lunch. <laughs> okay. Divine, I've got some sweet shit coming up yeah. for you right now, and I mean it. Yeah. Wow. Hell of a story. Tell it again. No. <laughs> so thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink. <laughs> Is that I'm, your thirsty mouth? That's my thirsty voice. There's a PayPal donut button there too, which I said earlier. Yep. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. 
Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. The Fam Bam. And follow us on Twitter, Snapchat and Insta and all those things. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. And did you know there's a list of all our episodes there with synopsises of all of them? Mm -hmm. And you can comment on them. You can. You can get a whole conversation you can go, going uh, there. Bad comedy. It's like a fish pavlova that was slapped out in the sun. Yeah. Lol. Yeah, I prefer a fish taco. Yeah, I know you um, do. Now you know they're real. Now I know they're real. Okay, so thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Pricks. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> Seven bucks a night. So how's your murderous taint feeling? Uh, kind of itchy. What about you? Itchy. You've got to scratch it sometimes. No, I'm not happy with this line of painting. All right. Oh, this tainted love is not for me, Marnie. Seems a little well, anal. You, will you come up with something better then? Well, okay. Mr. Funny Fucking Pants. Mr. Funny Pants? Ms. Funny Pants. Doctor. Doctor. Professor Funny Pants. Right. Thank you very much. Let's let's be appropriate about these things. Fucko. Hey, you know if you get a busted mug in the mail, you can tell us and we'll send you another one. Yeah, oh look, I think, well I hope they know, we've had a couple. Yeah, so if any, if any of your merch is faulty, I'll let you know. Oh, let us know. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. I'll set you up. Barney will. I will. Barney and his beard. You know what? Barney doesn't do it. Barney just naps, but his beard works very hard on this. Oh, my beard's been working very hard on badges. Oh, by the way, patrons, we're about to do a big mail out, so expect yeah, your badges and stickers soon. Yes. Sorry. It, it's oh, Everything banks up, but we uh, we do have it all together. I ran out of the makings of badges, the bits that you put them together. Yeah, he did. I ran out of sparkles and glitter. <laughs> well, I told you not to stick it all and I had to bum. wait. I had to wait for my chest hair to grow back because everyone expects a chest hair stuck in the badges. You they? have ample body hair. No, I used them all up no, in the last that mail is out. Not possible no. unless we have like five billion patrons. What's it's the, just not possible. But what's the opposite of his suit? His cheese. It would be his. bald, Barney. Bald. Yum yum. <laughs> <laughs> just like that person thought you were, but you aren't. Yum yum. I am yum yum. <laughs> Barney yum yum. Barney yum yum. Damn straight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.